Now I'm here. Now I'm here. And here I am. And now I'm here. And now you're here, dear listener, we can begin. Welcome to episode 14 of Mainframe Performance Topics podcast called In the Long Run. I'm Martin Packer. And what do you do, Martin? (laughs) I don't say any more than that this time. (laughs) And I'm Marna Wally from ZOS Development in Poughkeepsie. And where have you been lately, Marna? Uh, well, the last trip I took was to Orlando the week of May 22nd for the IBM Systems University. Great event it was. And my last trip out was actually to London in May to present even more fun with DDF to a user group. Okay. Uh, so we've got a little bit of follow-up from episode 13. Why don't you tell us about it, Martin? Well, that presentation I gave in May, even more fun with DDF, I did say kind of as a throwaway line that it would be a gift that kept on giving. And actually, just to follow up on that and show I was serious about it, I've got two blog posts out to do with DDF, really in the very much the same vein as as that presentation. So the first one is called A Tale of Two Batteries, which is really as in batteries of machines, like batteries of guns, as opposed to batteries that provide electricity. Uh, And that's really about working on groups of machines that call DB2 via DDF that might constitute some application grouping or other. So that's a tale of two batteries. The other one is one called Happy Days Are Here Again? Question mark. Trying to add a note of mystery here. Well, not for long. And basically, it's about the fact that I had with DB2 version 8 to give up on being able to do package level uh, analysis for DDF. And now I found a way of making it all right again so we can do it. And the point about this is the package names and package topology and breakdown of CPU brings to life even more distributed access to DB2. So that, that's the follow-up this time. Now, for once, Marna gets to explain the title of the episode. Oh, yes. I think it's the first time I've ever actually had somewhat of a title of an episode chosen, because actually, as you know, I I had suggested another one, but then you suggested the better one. So this episode is called In the Long Run, um, and we had picked this episode title because if you get to the topics topic, you'll see that episode length is very important to us. I try to go shorter. Martin tries to go longer. And so when we talk to our special guests in the topics topic, we tried to keep it within a commuting distance. And so this might be a longer commuting episode. So it's called In the Long Run. So let's hope you don't actually have to listen to it in a traffic jam. But if you are, at least you'll hear our dulcet tones various to help you on your way. Yes, indeed. And now it's time for our mainframe topic which is this time a ZOS 2.3 deep dive on a particular function, and this is part one, the first function we're going into detail on. Yeah, absolutely. So if we're going to do a deep dive on part one, I'm going to pick ZOSMF Auto Start, uh, because that that's pretty darn important. Right, and we actually mentioned this one in episode 10, which we called 2.3.4.U. Yeah, so let's do a deep dive on this right away because it's it's really important for everybody to understand and understand today. So what's happening in 2.3 is that your ParmLib is going to be able to control whether or not you start ZOSMF up during an IPL. And it will attempt to be auto-started during the IPL because the default is to start. So why would that be the default? And is it a new default in 2.3? 
Yeah, it's the new default. It's going to try to start it automatically. So if you think back to the days of when we automatically started Health Checker, let's use that analogy, right? So every system would try to start Health Checker, and it's a little bit like that in 2.3. You will have ZOSMF trying to start on every system as the, as the default, right? And the reason why we want to start it is because there are functions that are relying now on ZOSMF being there. So we would like to have this thing started. So suppose I'm a mad impulsive fool or otherwise somewhat conservative in my approach to things. Can I actually avoid having ZOSMF start up altogether somehow? Yes, you can. You can stop it from auto-starting. That requires an overt action from you within ParmLive to do it. But remember, if you don't start ZOSMF somewhere in the sysplex, there are functions that you won't be able to use in 2.3. And, and the most prominent function that we, we are talking about right now is the JES notification function, which is a great new function. But the JES notification function needs ZOSMF. Uh, REST service is there. And if you don't start ZOSMF, you're not going to be able to use JES notification. So there's a clear direction of travel here. So presumably I have some control over whether, where and how ZOSMF starts. Yes, you absolutely do. And, and that's what's the concern here is that you need to take that control and you need to make some decisions and you need to decide and specify some things. So let's start at the top, right? You know, automatically starting, what ParmLib member do we know? IASIS, right? So IASIS has an IZU equal statement, and that's going to point to your IZU PRM ParmLib member. Now, in your IZU PRM ParmLib member, you're going to have new statements for auto start. And one of those statements is going to be the specification on whether you want it to start or not, right? The default would be to start, and we're calling that, let's say, local meaning start ZOSMF locally on this particular system. Or you could say that you don't want to start it on this system, but you want this system to join a group where ZOSMF has already been started on another system. Let's, let's think of that about as a remote option, right? So you can decide on this system, do I want it local or do I want it remote? So it sounds to me like you'd want each system's IEA sys to have an ICU palm that would point to a different ICU palm XX member. Correct, and and you could share that ICU PRM palm live member between some systems. Let's see, like the remote systems, they may all have the same value, but you would want to have an ICU PRM for the local system in order to have that. And by the way, there's more stuff that's new in the ICU PRM palm live member, right? You also need to specify the name of the prox that you want to start for the angel and the server and, and go back to those days when we had to start health checker. You had to say the name of your proc if it's not the default, right? So there's some similarities between this and that. So can I have a ZOSMF server on each system in a sysplex? Yeah, we get that question a lot. So customers are thinking, okay, I'm going to auto start and let's say I'm going to try to auto start it on every system. Therefore, should I have a ZOSMF server on each system in the sysplex? And the answer is you could. However, I don't think that's necessarily what you want. The most common case that we're seeing is you might have a multi-system sysplex and you're a, you know, a customer, a single tenant customer that really just wants to have ZOSMF on, uh, up on one system. And auto start didn't change that requirements or consideration at all, or even the criteria for that. So most customers in a most common scenario with multi-system sysplexes are going to want to decide. I want the, it to start locally on this system, and then all of these other systems, I want to remotely connect to that system. So if you take the uh, not infrequently seen case of a monoplex, then presumably that's a no-brainer. That system 
is going to be the Zero SMF service system, right? Exactly. And that's a really easy decision there, right? And you probably don't need to go into the Parm Lib and, and override a lot of things because you're going to want to start it to have locally and, and things like that. So that will be a little bit less configuration uh, considerations for that monoplex system. So exactly what sorts of decisions should I make to give me what I want when setting this up? All right. So first of all, we talked about whether you want to be a locally started one or you want to connect to a remote one. And the one that you want to connect to remotely, we need to know which group, let's say, uh, is, is the name of that. So you'll have the ability to specify a group name. And this is so that we can have multiple tenants within the same sysplex. So let's say that you are a, a service provider, you have multiple systems in a sysplex, you want each one of your tenants to have their own server because you don't want to share them between the two tenants. Uh, and then you'd have, let's say, two group names. And you need to, to think about that. And you need to understand that this system is going to uh, connect to that group and this other system is going to connect to that other group. And you're going to want to decide to say where the server is going to start as well within the sysplex. So what would determine which system would be a good choice to start the server on? Yeah, so good candidates on where to start the ZOSMF server, still the same considerations we have before, right? Before 2.3. So what we're looking for and what we would like, right? Good zip capacity, good amount of real memory. Uh, we document that the minimum is going to be 4 gig. Uh, of course, you know, good memory, zip capacity, that's, that's, a, that's the thing that ZOSMF really would like. Ah, oh, so zip and memory and lots of it and lots of the other... So this is obviously Java. Actually, I knew that anyway. But I also knew it's now Liberty Profile, so presumably that's not really too bad. Yeah, Liberty got a whole lot better uh, when we moved to it, rather than the uh, larger WebSphere. When we scaled it down, Liberty was better. But you're right, it is Java. Uh, it works best on a zip because you can offload it and not affect your, you know, your general purpose processors. So yeah, Java, zip, more memory, more the better. Same old, same old. So, and I obviously want to put it on a system that's got the uh, the horsepower one way or the handle app. I think we've uh, hammered that one home pretty firmly. So, I'm updating IA6 and I'm updating IZU Palm if I don't want all the defaults. What else do I have to worry about? All right. So, some other new things in 2.3. These are above and beyond what we had in 2.2, right? Because 2.3 is an auto start, but there also were some extra things that we had in 2.3. There's a couple of new security profiles that we've added for 2.3 that you do need to define. We also have a brand new server and a brand new angel proc. As we know, a very common problem is people forget to update their server and their angel proc, probably on 2.3. You cannot use your existing procs from 2.1 and 2.2. You have to update them to the 2.3 procs. And right now, uh, those statements, those new statements that, you, that we talked about in IZU PRM, they can't be shared between uh, ZOS 2.3 and then lower level systems as well. So consider that as well too. Uh, so while you're sharing between multiple levels, uh, the, the ICU PRM PARM Live member, that's, that's something to think about too. So there's quite a lot to think about here. Yeah, and how. And that's why I wanted to talk about this as our first deep dive into 2.3 because being a migration person, this auto start uh, capability really is a big deal because it is going to require work and it will affect every single ZOS 2.3 IPL that we have. So you can't run from this one. It's, it's going to happen. 
my best advice at this particular point in time, get ZOSMF up and running prior to 2.3. That is, get it up and running on 2.2 and 2.1. You'll be really far ahead of the game so that when we go to auto start on 2.3, we're auto starting what you've already configured. You've got the vast majority of that security work already behind you. And then you just have the little bit extra to do in 2.3, right? You got the little bit of Parm Lib stuff to do, a little bit of security. You got to do those proc lib updates for the angel and the server because they're new procs. And definitely, you know, use server pack to help you. Server pack has accommodated all of these changes. It has the auto start support. You know, let server pack help you in this aspect. And it sounds to me like this is something that people should get cracking on ahead of 2.3. And I would guess that would be whether they're on 2.1 or 2.2. Yes, absolutely. Two one two two. I would say that this is uh, action that you need to do now, even if you're not going to get to two three for a while, because as I said, this is the biggest migration action affecting every IPL of two three. But it doesn't have to be bad if you prepare for it ahead of time. You're in luck. So this seems to me one of the more important migration actions, which is why we've covered it as our first deep dive on on two three. And I think there's a lot of useful advice in there. So, so I think we ought to do more of these uh, two, three deep dive items some sometime or other. Yeah, I'd love to. So now's the time in our podcast for the performance topic. And if it's performance, it's going to be Martin. Uh, Martin, I understand you've got some parallel sysplex topics today for us within performance. So I did a couple of blog posts recently called Some Parallel Sysplex Questions, Parts 1 and 2. And there's some questions format. It's very similar to one I used with Workload Manager a, a while back. And the Parts 1 and 2 relate to the fact that I split it fairly neatly, I think, into Coupling Facility as Part 1 and XCF Signaling as Part 2. Okay, so that sounds good. We've got a part one and a part two of this. It sounds good. So let's talk about each of them. But first, uh, if it's performance and you're talking sysplex stuff, what are you using for numbers? Are you getting stuff from RMF? Yes, I'm using RMF. And actually, most particularly, I'm using the SMF records, the type 74, subtypes 2 and 4, typically, that RMF will cut. But, you know, there are other ways of looking, at least instantaneously, at parallel suspect performance. So, for example, there are display operator commands, which are handy at a pinch. But really, SMF is better for heavy, heavyweight performance and capacity when it comes to parallel suspects. Definitely, yeah. Okay, so part one, coupling facility. Let's talk coupling facility. So this part one actually breaks into two subparts and the first one is all about resources and the second part is all about structures and you could view that as analogous to how you would look at ordinary ZOS system performance so you'd look at resources and you'd look at applications so here structures play the role of an application if you want to think of it that way so the resources unsurprisingly are going to be CPU memory and actually paths here so there's no disk involved in this so the io analog to disk is going to be paths so cpu i'm mostly interested in things like how busy is the coupling facility image in cpu terms and are we actually going to be able to recover to a surviving coupling facility or two if one of them breaks and i say one or two because Customers quite often have more than two coupling facilities these days, so it's not necessarily a case of when one breaks, can the other one take the load? It's a bit more complicated than that quite often. Oh, okay. 
And then we have rules of thumb about white space and about not running a coupling facility CPU more than about 50% busy. Uh, so that's a whole fruitful area, rather like, as I say, uh, ZOS CPU. Now memory, again, is analogous to ZOS memory, except for it's managed completely differently and in a much more static fashion. So here I am interested in white space for memory. I'm interested in, can you again decamp structures from some other coupling facility in, into this one? Now paths gets interesting because paths is all about things like what type of paths and what happens as the load builds up over paths. And as I've said several times in various places, you can actually tell how long a path effectively is because of a number called latency which is basically 10 microseconds for every kilometer, kilometer indeed, <laughs> kilometer of distance. Yeah, that was, that was pretty interesting. And I would imagine the con connection technology would play a role into the path. So that is your technology choice for which path uh, you're using, right? Absolutely. And that's evolved a lot over the generations of processor. And the instrumentation actually tells a very good and complex story about the kinds of connectivity technology that's being used. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine newer is better, right? Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, good choices on top of newer is better, absolutely. Yeah, I, I could have guessed that one. All right, so, so that was resources. Go to the next subtopic, which is structures. Right, so as I say, structures are really playing the role of applications. And this is where, to my mind, my rather nosy mind, it really brings things to life. Because I'm kind of interested not just in how busy cupping facilities are, but actually, what are you doing with them? So one of the things I like to do, for example, is to recognize DB2 data sharing groups because I see the lock one structure, I see the SCA, I see the group buffer pools. I might even see duplexing between the group buffer pools and, and occasionally duplexing of the, of the lock one. So the other thing to say about that is that actually I can see the data sharing group from the structure names. So, so it's quite nice to pull out the DB2 data sharing group structure and how it's being operated. Yeah, but that's more a middleware view. I mean, you you love DB2 and you live for DB2 and that's all well and good, but I like things that are lower down on the system and the infrastructure. So what about the you know system level, the down deeper CF structures? There are a lot of very basic coupling facility structures associated with the system side. So for example, things like XCF signaling structures, things like JS2 checkpoint, RACF structures, um, GRSR structures, that lots of those show up. So, for example, I could tell, it's rather an old fashioned example to give, but I'll give it anyway. I can tell if a customer is using GRSR rather than GRS ring because the ISG lock structure will, will show up in the data. So, yes, you can get quite nosy about uh, system side parallel system setup as well just by looking at the structures. Yeah. But I, I think it's worth noting that the reason why I tend to focus on DB2 data sharing groups is because their traffic is generally one of the uh, bigger sets of traffic in terms of structures. And on the system side, we do see some quite busy structures, but they tend to be the XCF structures and they tend to be the GRS star lock structure. Those are really the only ones that tend to be high volume unless something very unusual is going on. So... When I look at the structure, quite apart from the name thing, which I've just gone, gone and done to death, I'm quite interested in things like responsiveness with load. So responsiveness with load is what happens as you build up the request rate to a structure. So an example I like to give, which is quite old now, is I noticed in the customer's data 
the DB2 group buffer pool performed very nicely with very small response times up to about a thousand requests a second. But as soon as you got to a thousand requests a second, then all of a sudden the response time got chaotic and much, much higher. So that basically says we topped out at a thousand requests a second. So responsiveness with load is quite an interesting thing. Generally speaking, I find my customers are tending to have very good responsiveness with load. So for example, an internal coupling link connected lock one structure might achieve a response time of somewhere between three to five microseconds and that would be fairly constant no matter what the request rate was. So responsiveness with load is quite a nice topic. And then to bring to life the CPU usage I mentioned earlier, you can do that by structure as well. Now that's really good for a couple of reasons. It's really good because sometimes it explains why the response time is what it is because a lot of it is CPU. Now that's part of what happens to responsiveness with load. So this three to five mics I mentioned for a lock structure, most of that will turn out to be CPU if it's an IC link, but then most of it won't be if we're talking about a real world physical link. So that's one thing. But the other thing is it's good for capacity planning. So for example, if I think I'm going to be doing a lot more requests to a structure, it'd be nice to extrapolate and work out what impact that will have on the coupling facility CPU. So that's why I say CPU usage by structure is good for capacity planning. And by the way, unsurprisingly, the structures that tend to drive the CPU load are indeed XCF and DB2 lock one and DB2 group buffer pools. But I think it's fair to note that it isn't necessarily proportionate to the traffic because some requests are much heavier in CPU terms. For example, list structure requests and cache structure requests tend to be heavier in CPU terms. So you actually do need the CPU usage by structure to be able to do a good job of capacity planning here. Mm, interesting. The other thing I like to look at in terms of structures is really to do with sizing. I'm going to call this memory exploitation because that's what I think customers need to think more about. But that's very basic. It's how big is the structure and how big should it be? Yeah, that is very important as we see structures needing to be larger for each CF level that goes higher. So are you talking about looking at the CF sizer tools, the CF sizer and the sizer tool? Well, I think those are good starting points. But, you know, there are some structures, so to bang on about DB2 again, but if you take the example of a DB2 group buffer pool, then these are really starting points for the size of DB2 group buffer pools because these tools don't tend to know enough to enable you to do a really, really first-class job of sizing DB2 group buffer pools. But that's where DB2 statistics trace and actually, again, RMF come into play. And when I look at RMF, we're thinking about things like how full are the structures. So, for example, a group buffer pool will have directory trees and data elements and if either of those is full, then you get bad effects like uh, sometimes cast outs, uh, but certainly directory entry reclaims, the data element reclaims and cross invalidations. So those metrics, all of which have come from RMF, are good indicators of whether the structure is undersized. And I have to say, as a general piece of commentary here, that in my experience, not entirely always true, but generally true, customers undersize coupling facility structures, particularly the DB2 ones, particularly things like lock one and, and group buffer pools. So I think 
one of the ways to look at this is, is is that people should be encouraged to think about what they could do with larger structures. And the good news here is in most of my customers, there's actually plenty of spare memory in the cupping facility to increase their sizes. So that's why I use the term memory exploitation rather than memory conservation when it comes to structure sizing. Yeah, I think that's that's really good advice. And people resize a little bit, get a nice uh, boost on performance. Nothing wrong with that if they've got the memory available for sure. All right, so that was CF. Let's move on to the other side of this conversation, which is XCF. So if I haven't said you to sleep yet, you'll remember that I talked for Cuffing Facility about resources and structures, and structures were the analog for applications. Well, in XCF terms, we have resources, and we also have another analog for applications, which is XCF groups. So let's start with resources. So really here, there's only one kind of resource that's particularly important. We have paths, and paths are owned by things called transport groups, and XCF makes decisions on routing based on the performance of those paths. Uh, so that, that is a resource-level topic in, in its own right. Sometimes customers get it badly wrong. Uh, sometimes we get things like even though we have coupling facility structures for XCF, XCF is choosing to use real C2C channel-to-channel links instead. And that's usually something to do with using shared engines for coupling facilities. Or maybe it just happens for some reason to be the case that the CTC links perform better at some point. So path tuning, path performance is an important resource level topic. In this case, people talk about XCF buffers. Uh, that's really talking about memory, but it's a very secondary topic most of the time compared to paths. And here, really, CPU doesn't play in quite quite the same way. So resources is simpler for XCF. Mm. So let's so let's turn to groups. So groups is really again where it all comes to life. So groups you can really think of as application types. So, for example, one of the major groups I tend to see is one called DFHIR000, which is, unsurprisingly, the default Kix XCF group. So it's where, X, where Kix regions talk to each other through XCF. By the way, don't make the mistake of thinking all the Kix to Kix transactional discussion is via XCF, because a lot of it is via the means. Groups have things called members, and to take the Kix example again, a member is going to be a Kix region. There are other groups like uh, DB2 data sharing groups. So to cut a long story short, for each DB2 data sharing group, there are two major XCF groups, and this is where the RLMs talk to each other. And so again, you get topology out, out of this. But it's all very well to say I've got a, a bucket full of Kix regions talking to each other XCF. It's really rather more interesting to try and work out who talks to whom. Now, this is a little bit more fraught, actually, because I can tell for any member of a group, namely a Kix region, which system it talks to. But I can't tell directly from the instrumentation which other Kix region it talks to. Now, I had a discussion with Mark Brooks of XCF fame a couple of years ago, and he pointed out to me that basically you could have a 2048-member group. And if you did that, you could do the arithmetic here, you'd end up with 4 million, 4 binary million 
different combinations of members talking to members and that you really can't stuff into into SMF. So we don't have member to member, we have member to system, which is much more manageable in, in traffic terms. And it's kind of fun to try and guess which regions talk to each other, but it really is a guess unless you actually happen to know the real topology. But for me, that's quite a good game. Oh, good. Uh, uh, by the way, I was talking to a customer the other day who said that 2048 members in an XCF group for kicks was not enough for them. So they had to split their XCF group for kicks into multiple XCF groups just to get around that limit. Hmm. So th that limit is a real limit that some people hit, apparently. Oh, interesting. Okay. So in terms of performance capacity, the main theme here for XCF groups is actually managing the traffic down where possible. Now, the key words here are where possible because I don't think it's necessarily that easy. So, for example, I mentioned that DB2 data sharing had two groups. Now, those are to do with the lock one lock structure. And one of the approaches to getting the traffic down could be resizing the lock structure, but only if we're getting false contentions in the lock structure. Otherwise, that doesn't really have much effect. The other thing you can do, though, and it's really not lock structure tuning, is maybe there's something in the way you manage locks in the DB2s that could be altered. Now, that's a much more fertile ground and well beyond my scope and certainly beyond the scope of this particular podcast topic to really discuss that in any depth at all. But that's a theme, and, and part of this is, is about alerting people to themes. Um, so managing down traffic where possible, I think, is the right, right way of putting it. You know, this is all in all quite a complex pair of topics, coupling facility and XCF, which makes it quite fun from my point of view. As I say, I've, I've blogged about this many, many times in lots of different aspects. It come a long way over the last 25 years. So quite a fun one. Yeah, it is. And, and these topics are very interesting. So now it's time for our podcast's topic topic, and we're really happy today because our topic's topic is subtitled Podcast Meets Podcast. So who are the other podcast we're meeting? We're meeting Jeff Bisty and we're meeting Frank DeGilio from their Terminal Talk podcast. Hello. Hi. Hi, guys. How's it going? So, okay, you're going to have to explain the name Terminal Talk. Do we have to? <laughs> okay if you don't want to that's no, it's actually kind so of a funny story actually it's a bunch of funny stories but we we started with um uh we were thinking of a couple of different names for our podcast we we actually came up with uh the cobalt the cobalt rapport um with bus and tag yeah that was that was the first one but um we we are known uh for our friends on facebook for doing something called tunnel talk because every time we're in the Detroit airport, we walk through the tunnel underneath, which has a bunch of colors and music. And, and so um, our devoted fans are used to tunnel talk. Literally dozens of viewers. Yeah. And, and some <laughs> Including of your mothers. Yeah. So we, we were you know, live streaming tunnel talk and we were trying to think of a, what's a, you know, a catchy, name for a mainframe podcast and uh we just twisted a little bit into terminal talk and uh we found out afterwards that uh there is already another terminal talk podcast it's about uh model trains which is kind of cool 
but they don't put a space between terminal and talk and their last episode was like in 2016. So we're, 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 we're we feel pretty good about taking that name over. So tell me how the actual podcast series came about. Oh. Well, <laughs> so uh, we, we often spend a lot of time uh, traveling to customer locations together and, and one of the places that we went to was in Pennsylvania, which is a four-hour drive. Four hours each one, way. <laughs> right, one way, four hours. And it is a particularly boring ride. Luckily, you know, we got the top-of-the-line car that IBM allows you to get. The nicest beige Nissan Versa that you can you can possibly imagine. <laughs> And um, <laughs> I'm not sure what the overseas equivalent of that is. Just something that you would use once and throw out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one-way trip car, is it? it yeah. It, it really, really is. And it's really not meant to be driven more than 20 or 30 minutes, right? <laughs> um, so we're in this car. And, you know, if you're in the car, you know, and you're meeting somebody for the first time, four hours could go pretty quick, right, when you're getting to know somebody. Unfortunately, Jeff and I know each other way too well. So we were really, really bored. And in order to fill in the boredom, because we've done this trip more than once in the yeah. same car, um, we would listen to podcasts. And and so we're on our way to Pennsylvania, and we're talking about um, podcasts that we like and, and what we like and, and don't like about them. And we kind of came across the idea of why don't we do one? Yeah. Cause I, I listen to a bunch of podcasts that are about, um, some are about, uh, politics, some are true crime, some are like general technology. And it's, it's kind of cool when they have an expert about a very niche area in, and we said, you know what? Um, we can kind of blend kind of the, the vibe from a, an IBM conference or, you know, a share conference when there's just people, somewhat being casual and, and social, but still talking shop and kind of bring that to the airwaves. And we, we thought, you know, um, it would be a good excuse to um, to bring some equipment in here and, and, you know, bring people over here and get their opinions. And because yeah, you, know, you can only fly so many drones in the office. Before right. You get bored. Yeah. Right. Right. And so so I, I guess you'd admit that uh, your topics are very niche. And I guess that goes alongside imposter syndrome as being an inevitable part of being in the business. Well, and I, I would say that, you know, our focus is is really on providing connections uh, for people who have not grown up in the platform. Right. You guys, your your podcast is very focused on uh, people who really understand the basic components and really want some more detail. We're trying to hit people who have just kind of started out and uh, they're in an office and their boss has pointed them to one particular thing and said, you're going to do this now. And and they have no way of connecting that to anything else that's going on. So we're trying to give them that, that wider uh, wider perspective. Yeah. So something like SMF so, in general, they they've heard the word, they understand that it it's something about writing data, but um, when there's never time to get somebody to actually start from the beginning and say, this is why it's important. Um, so we, we, we try to get our guests to, to back all the way up and say, well, it's important for this reason. And with, you know, giving minimal history lessons and just giving context because, you know, it, it's, it's important. You know, we're, we're, I'm thinking. All day, all night, all day. 
<laughs> is that Alexa playing a song for you, Martin? <laughs> that that actually was my phone rudely interrupting us. Remix with with with, with, with local people, which is not really a comment on on you all. But anyway, <laughs> we might cut this bit out. We might just carry on with. We'll see how it comes out in the mix. So 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 what I understood from what you're saying basically is you're not stealing our audience, but your audience might grow up to become our audience. Hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> by, the word, I'm, I'm the, think- by the way, the words "grow up" are uh, a very much a movable feast. Right. I mean, there's more toys on Frank's desk than actual work items. Uh- <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I want to hit the gong as soon as this is over. I get to hit. The uh, gong. There, there are rules there are about rules. hitting the gong. You oh. can't just hit it randomly. All right. Well, so it's it's there to celebrate um, promotions, uh, patent milestones, um, Chinese New Year, um, days off. People that we don't like getting fired. Yeah. Hey, uh, tomorrow I'm taking a day off, so maybe is that gong worthy? Mm, I don't think so. Well, and you have to be really careful because if you ring the gong and the other people don't, Uh. you have to run head first into the gong. And we... That could be painful there, for the gods. There are a lot of um, there are a lot of rules. <laughs> it keeps it fresh, though. So, 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 so if I could be goal oriented for once in my life, ever so briefly, uh, according to our outline here, we're supposed to ask you questions about your recording technology, or, or more to the point, I'm told I should drool at your recording technology. Oh yes. <laughs> um, so I guess I'll take that. We have we have microphones in here, and I. I played in some bands, um, you know, years ago, and I'm starting. I want to start doing it again, but uh, so I have a lot of microphones, and I um, had an audio interface. And uh, for the podcast, I realized we're going to have to have three, sometimes four microphones going at once. So I, I went on Craigslist, and I found somebody selling a really nice 12-channel Mackie mixing board, and I picked that up. And uh, so yeah, we record so far, recording everything live in the room. Uh, into microphones, plugged into a mixer, plugged into a compressor, um, a comple- compressor noise gate, which is important because uh, we, we recorded an episode, and right before we started recording, I set all the levels, and then I told Frank, oh yeah, by the way, on the last episode, I could hear you breathing. So Frank got really, you know, breath shy and started broadcasting from 500 feet away from the <laughs> microphone, and so the levels were a little bit off, so this will... Uh, what that does is it helps uh, if there's very little noise, it just shuts it out completely. And if somebody starts getting really loud, it uh, it attenuates the signal. So it kind of keeps things relatively flat. Yeah, and I would say one of the things that's different about what we do from the way you do things is you guys um, have all this knowledge to impart, and we're just people, right? So what we do is we have smart people come in and talk about stuff and we can just bask in the glow of their smartness yeah and we act like yeah i know what that means yeah absolutely and then what the listener can't see is me looking up everything over here that's the value of google yeah so we have smart people too and yes i I think a dirty little secret is i also have been known to google when man is talking (laughs) i don't do it the other way i just let martin go on when he talks about performance as uh (laughs) So what I got from well, that, that makes yeah. it, if we just let each other go on for for on on and on and on, then it makes it easier for the editing because the large blocks of silence that are meant to be silence, we can edit all 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 in one chunk. So uh, we'll come back to editing in a minute. So the other thing I, I wanted to figure out was, do you do any kind of planning for your episodes, or, or are you just winging it completely? We do a lot of uh, planning right up to the point we start winging it. 
<laughs> yeah, so we had Jeff Fry in let here. Me, let me guess, that's quite early on you start winging it. Yeah. Well, our, our planning is more in um, finding the right guests and, and really trying to get people who can be engaging um, as well as informative. But w w every time we've tried to plan a conversation, uh, it tends to go awry. Yeah, so we, we had Jeff Fry in and we said, wow, we, we're going to have Jeff Fry in here. We can't blow this. And we filled up a, like a whiteboard and a half with questions, and I don't think we got to a one of them. And no. I, th I think the interview <laughs> would have suffered if we kept saying, "Well, that's that's really nice, Jeff, but we have to get back to the board." And you know, so we we kept it freewheeling, and before we knew it, we were an hour in, and uh, so that's why it's that episode is two parts. Well, uh, you know these well, you know these retired IBMers have to be have to be kept on plan, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, that's a good question. An hour. I mean, I I'm always pushing Martin shorter, 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 and he's always thinking longer, longer. So how long do you guys want to go? Just thirty? I mean, that's about where we're trying to cut it off. Yeah, the, the idea is uh, we want something that somebody can listen to on their way to work, right? Because if it's too long, um, they'll get bored, and and mm. I just want enough to to give somebody an understanding of what this thing is or why is this important to why why the mainframe why this component why the bow tie yeah well we've, we've been telling there yeah. are a lot of people here who don't listen to podcasts and i've been trying to tell them you should listen to a podcast you know you should listen to ours and i know that if we told them yeah it, it's 90 minutes they'd go yeah, I don't have a computer anymore. I don't know how to do that. So if I can say it's a half hour, they say, okay, that's that's manageable. Um, and most of the podcasts I listen to, they try to keep it a half an hour. There are a couple long-form ones, but that's something that I listen to like as I'm doing work around the house. And Right. So, okay, so, so that, that, that that's planning. That's trying to keep to a reasonable length. And, yeah, we tend to go longer. By the way, th this interview itself is going to probably take us well over our normal, but everything else we're doing in this particular episode is also much longer than normal. So hey, got to give the people what they want. About this when she sees it. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was editing. So I use Audacity, and I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I'm trying to do it in stereo. Uh, which got us into trouble actually with somebody who only had a mono speaker the the other month, but but never, never mind. So so what are you using for doing editing? Yeah, we're we're using Audacity as well, uh, and we're actually recording at mono, um, because I, I'm one of those people who I I have to listen to your podcast either in the car or with a full set of headphones. I'm typically listening at home with like a in one channel, so it's either. Um, it's either one of you or the other. So, um, yeah, we, we do it straight mono into one channel. And, oh, well. Uh, well, you see, on the flip side, we, I, I got a compliment from somebody who, who we all know and very much respect and who I won't name, uh, who said he Santa? really liked the fact that we were using stereo on ours. So uh, we, we might be unique in that, and you win some, you lose some. It'll be like the, uh, the, when the drums come in on, uh, in the air tonight, how they pan from one side to the other. Which I think Frank has a question. <laughs> yeah, you got you know you're doing this. Uh, you transition between uh, topics with the with the walking. How come you're not walking across my head in the from one one ear to the other? Oh no, that's the next thing. You're giving him ideas now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've had I've had that idea actually, and, and you wouldn't believe how difficult it is to get to get that to work right. But yes. That that's what I thought, but that, actually, to be serious for one moment, I thought about We're that. We're dead and I serious thought, well, about in this. In which direction do you want the walking to be, and do we actually want the listener to worry about which way we're walking? 
And who's doing the walking? The one who's just had their item or the one who's just about to have it? Oh, this is typical Martin uh, overthinking. Wow. No, no, the rest of the world underthinks. Yeah, I, I, and anyway, I, so, so, I think so the point is we can have some fun. We have fun with the stereo, at least I do. And actually the audacity is really good fun to use. And I would say not being a musician at all, I've never had anything audio wise to play with. So doing a podcast is just a vehicle to give me something to edit. Yeah. And actually one of the things about our podcast is we have a, we have an announcer, uh, one of the contractors that used to work with us, uh, Mr. Mr. Charlie Lawrence. He is a professional broadcaster, so we wrote down a whole bunch of stuff we wanted him to say, and I met up with the studio in him uh, with him and uh, just had him record a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, the even the announcer of our show has over 50 years of uh, IBM IT experience. Yeah, which will probably have him on our show at some point. Yeah. But we'll have to bring in kids or something because it'll bring the average age of the group way too high. Yeah, what, what the listeners can't see is uh, – we we have some equations worked out on the board over here. Is we we figured out the average age of the room if it's just Frank and I, um, if it's me and Frank and Charlie, and we decide we have to bring in two new hires to bring it da- back down to double digits. <laughs> yes. Now the other thing I was going to talk about in editing terms is one thing I like about Audacity is the visual nature. So. Uh, I've just tweeted a couple of really bad jokes here. So so having just come out of a session of editing a previous segment of this podcast episode, I've come up with the terms so-so birds and umfish. And the reason why I've used those uh, names is because if I say so-so as I want to do, I get two bird shapes, one after the other. And the umfish, well, if you ever say um, it looks just like a flounder, which is quite good, because essentially if you're saying um, you're floundering about. <laughs> so that's the sort of small joke that occupies my mind when using Audacity. Well, you really got to get out more. Visual jokes about recording audio is, uh, wow. And I'm, because I'm, I'm sitting over back here. To what we said earlier, it's a bit niche, isn't I'm it? I'm sitting over here in Audacity and I'm watching the waveforms too to make sure we're not clipping or anything like that. And I'm just going to just do a little test here. Um, um, yeah, it, the story checks out. <laughs> <laughs> Can confirm. Can confirm. Okay, so, uh, so, so let, let, let's, let's wrap up. So, so I would say I've enjoyed listening to both the short test episode and the long episode that I've heard. And I like the fact that you didn't fall for the episode zero gag that I fell for because it's way too tempting to av- avoid with your first one. Um, and I'm going to take a cue from what you said about this is really, in a sense, for beginners. And I hope everybody who subscribes to our podcast will actually subscribe to yours. And I checked out where I could get hold of it. And I don't do Android, so Marna can fill me in on that in a minute. But uh, it's on iTunes, most definitely. And my iOS podcast client, which is Overcast, definitely has it. So that's actually how I'm subscribed to it. So, so I hope our listeners will... Um, well, join us in, in listening to your podcast. And thank you guys for uh, for being on with us. Thank you. And we will encourage both of our listeners to listen to yours. <laughs> well, that will triple the number of listeners we've got. I think. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And now it's time for our customer requirements spot.
And Marna has three nice customer requirements for us to discuss right now. Yeah, I, I actually like investigating our customer requirements because people have a lot of good ideas about things they'd like and, you know, they're, they're very exciting to read. So the first one I have is that DSS needs to support extended tie-out. That's ADRDSSU for, for those that don't know DSS. And the ID for that is 105375. So the description in the requirement is that when DFSMS ADRDSSU is copying a whole lot of data sets, and particularly those are a lot of data sets that are multi-volume data sets, you might see an error, ADR405E. What this is saying is that some of the data sets aren't copied uh, because the tie-out's too small and you have to go back into your job, you have to edit it, you have to put the uncopied data sets in the list, you have to submit it again, and therefore you have to run in additional jobs, and then you keep lather, rinsing, repeating until you have all the data sets that you want copied, copied. So obviously this is really cumbersome. And if DSS supported extended tie-out, we could actually dynamically allocate more volumes and expect that fewer failures would be seen. So right now you can check your current tie-out size in the ALEC member of ParmLib. And this problem can also be bypassed by, you know, increasing the size of the tie-out or copying fewer data sets at one time. But really I like the, the spirit of this requirement is that it would be nice to just be able to copy a whole lot of data sets in one fell swoop. So, so I think I would observe that almost forever now, DB2 has used the extended tie-out, which allows you many more data set stroke volume combinations. So, you know, for, for lots of data sets, lots of extents on lots of volumes, this is the sort of thing you really, really need. And actually, the XX member doesn't entirely solve the problem it just might give you a little bit of control over it so you know I, th I think this has got to be seen as quite a good one and the thing I'd observe about this business about data sets that didn't get copied that you now need to take a list and then you need to edit it into the syntax necessary for ADR DSSU and then resubmit the job and so on and so forth that's very cumbersome, but not only that it's actually I would think probably quite error prone as well so you know this 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 is really quite painful i would would think yeah there's nothing wrong with this requirement that's for sure and as i say the allocate sex workaround is really a sledgehammer to crack a nut and actually to be frank it might not crack a nut so i think it's a goodie yeah i like it too well we'll see what ibm responds to on that one all right next one we have requirement number two i found that was interesting and this is a this is kind of a no-brainer i think is that ibm needs to update open ssh so the, the comment of the requirement is that ZOS 2.2 and, by the way, 2.3 have OpenSSH 6.4p1 and OpenSSL 1.0.2h, which is at a level of about 3 May 2016, approximately. But there is a generally available version for OpenSSH at 7.5p1, which is circa 20th of March 2017. So the requirement is that a new level of OpenSSH should be put into the new operating system level. Now, what I liked about this one is I saw that the status was, quote, plan for a future release. So I do like that one. That kind of implies there might be a future release to stick it in. Uh, but more seriously, folks, uh, my comment on this is if we are going to distribute open source software or ported software, the onus is really on us to keep it 
as current as we possibly can. And okay, individual levels might not be relevant, but in general, you know, this this is this is one where I think this is a goodie because we should be keeping stuff as up to date as we sensibly can. Yeah, you know, once you port it, it's the gift that keeps giving back to development, right? Because <laughs> once you port it, it's a gift that comes back right again for it. But, you know, I was thinking about this one, and, and the onus is not just on to keep current on open software, but also we have the problem with browser support as well. Totally different topic, but kind of brings the same feeling to me when we talk about that. An equally thorny problem, I would say. Yeah. All right, and the last one, actually, Martin and I talked about this one quite a bit before we're going to put it in the podcast, but uh, this is an interesting one. Um, the, the requirement is for the option to suppress override messages from the new SMF LIM ParmLive member that came in ZOS 2.2. So, admirably, a customer is trying to replace the IEFUSI exit in a user mod with SMF LIM ParmLive member. This, as you recall, is a new thing that came in 2.2, and I strongly encourage people to use it if they can. However, there are a lot of IEF16I messages that are being issued for each of the steps you can see with SMF LIM in the syslog. What I really liked about this requirement is that the customer was calling them syslog junk. Really like that term. So the message would say something like step something or other, um, is set to whatever, by policy, whatever, right? And it just went on and on and on and into the category of what they were calling syslog junk. So the requirement itself is to have the SMF LIM Parm Live member have an option so that you can suppress the messages. And it, it wasn't just su for suppressing all messages. I really like they said they want an option to suppress info messages, warn messages, and error messages to give you some granularity. Hmm, multiple options. So I think it's actually not re unreasonable to ask for more than you really need. And what you really need is probably just one of these, but not all of them. So, and why not ask for colors for the messages while you're at it? So maybe green for info, yellow for warn, and red for error. Yeah, yeah just go for it. Go for the stars here, because I, I like it. And, and actually, SMF limb requirements, we know we have some. Um, and it's a good thing to have because we do want to get rid of that IEFUSI exit. So SMFLIM is, is strategic, so it's a good thing to do. The actual status on this one coming back from IBM is uncommitted candidate. So I like that. Well, my personal take on this is these messages would be useful in job logs. So when you're running a job, you might want to understand how, for example, the region or the mem limit got set the way it did. So that's kind of debugging, but I'm not really sure that these messages are particularly useful in syslog anyway, because I don't think they're really system monitoring messages at all. The other thing I would say, by the way, which is slightly getting off topic, but not much, is a reminder that in the SMF30 record, you have indicators on how these things got set. So SMF lim coming into play is already flagged to some extent in the SMF30 record. But uh, I do think these messages belong in job log and probably not syslog for most people. Yeah, yeah. be interesting to understand why it was done that way in the first place. I'm sure there might have been some reason why, but I, but I do like this requirement. So now we come to the portion of our podcast where we talk about out and about. These are places that we expect to be speaking, so not just listening to us. Hopefully you can come see Martin and I. I am a dull and simple lad and cannot tell water from champagne. And in fact, I'm going nowhere this time. <laughs> This is funny because this is exactly opposite of the blog. I usually don't have much to say on the blog section and you sometimes haven't had much to say about our places, but same places for me. I'm planning to go to Share in Providence, Rhode Island, the week of August 7th. 
looking forward to that and I'm frantically getting all of my presentations updated. There's a lot of new stuff to put in for ZOS 2.3 so I'm frantic on that one. And the next location I'm going is Melbourne, Australia for the Systems University on August 14th. That's going to be a nice three-day event, no longer a two-day event. They moved it to a three-day event and I'm really hoping to see my Z buddies down under at that one. I think you mean up over. <laughs> up and over and a long way there, yeah. It's worth it, though. No, no, not down under, up over, as they up would be quick to, quick to point us out to us. What, are you going over the North Pole when you get there? I don't. No, no, this is just the Northern Hemisphere-centric view of the world that says down under. Oh, uh, yeah. They yeah, would they claim are. to be up over. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Uh, if you didn't <laughs> like that joke, you were no doubt going to tell us, because we welcome feedback and we'll probably get some on that bad joke. Yeah, we will. But North is up. I, I still think North is up. So, okay. <laughs> so it is down if you're going south. Okay. So let's get back to our script here, shall we, for once. Uh, we welcome feedback. Yeah. In particular, we'd be interested in what topics you'd like us to discuss. We're always looking for new topics. Otherwise, Martin and I will just pick what we feel like, and it may or may not be what you want. We'll do the same as we always do. We've got plenty of ideas, actually. All right, now the section's on the blog. So, okay, Martin, take your time. Tell us all the exciting blogs you've got. So, when I look at this list, it's a rather intimidating list of six blog posts. Actually, two of them I've already talked about, which is the some parallel suspect questions in the performance topic, because that's really two, two blog posts right there. I also mentioned um, two DDF blog posts at, at the intro. So the first one is Happy Days Are Here Again, and the second one is A Tale of Two Batteries. The fourth, no, the fifth one was a DB2 one called Give Me All Your Logging, which is a rather contorted uh, spin on a well-known song title. But it's really about how you can work out which DB2 applications are the logging hogs, namely writing the bulk of the logging records and driving maybe your logging subsystem for DB2 crazy. And the final one is a very recent blog post called Some Lessons on DF Sort Join, which actually picks up where I left off quite a number of years ago when we first introduced DF Sort Join and gives you some hard-fought lessons, hard-fought by me anyway, on trying to develop an application using DF Sort Join. So that's six blog posts. So haven't I been wonderfully productive? Oh, yeah, much more than me. You know, I was just thinking, you spend a lot of time uh, doing the blogs and the podcast, and I just seem to put all my time in the podcast. So I got nothing on the blog front. Okay, so here's how you can get hold of us. You can get hold of me on Twitter as Martin Packer or email me as martin underscore packer at uk.ibm.com. And I'm Marna Wally on Twitter. That's M-W-A-L-L-E. And my user ID for email is M-W-A-L-L-E at us.ibm.com. So it goes.